0: When I think, O Lord, about what it means to tell on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born, it reflects in my mind upon your word that says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, proclaiming news of happiness. This is the gospel, and this is why we have come this morning to proclaim the good news of the gospel, both for those who haven't heard or haven't believed and for us who have known you for some time, Lord, we delight to bask in your glory and to see the majesty of our King. And so help us now, Lord, to see, give us eyes to see, some in this room perhaps eyes that see for the very first time, take the blinders off and help them to see the glory of Jesus Christ this morning. And Father, we pray it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This morning we are in John chapter 11, and I hope to finish the narrative of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has really packed a lot into this story. And though we've already looked at it for three weeks, yet there is more. There's more to be seen and more to glory in, more glory for us to see and more about which we glorify God, God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Last week, we started thinking about the various characters in the story and how, um, how they responded to the news that Lazarus was sick. Specifically, we saw how Jesus responded to the news, and his response was not one that we may have expected. Of course, you'll remember that when word finally got to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, the unexpected response was that Jesus did nothing for two days. He did nothing. He allowed enough time so that there would be no question that Lazarus had died. He was dead. He was not just sick. They had not mistakenly put him in the tomb. He had been there for four days. He is really, really dead. There is just no denying it, as we'll see at the end of this narrative. It becomes even more clear than what you're imagining right now. And so Jesus allowed time to be sure that everybody understood that Lazarus was dead. And so uh, nearly a week after he received the news, about Lazarus being sick, Jesus finally arrives in the city of Bethany, or the little village of Bethany. In fact, it's so small that, it's, uh, that archaeologists aren't even sure where it was, even though it was just south of Jerusalem. So he arrives at Bethany, where Mary and Martha are grieving the loss of their brother. And of course, the question on everybody's mind is, what took you so long? Why didn't you come sooner? Is If Jesus really loves Lazarus and his sisters, why didn't he come immediately and heal him rather than letting him die? And it becomes evident that this is probably the question on everybody's mind, especially now that we get to the second section of the text, verses 7 through 27, we see how Jesus responds to Martha's grief. She says to him, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.'" Now, I don't think you have to read between the lines too much to pick up on her message. I mean, she's basically saying, if, if you truly loved us, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? Why didn't you help? And Jesus responds by telling her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And that sounds to her, I think, like an ill-timed theology lesson. That she doesn't care to hear. This is hardly the time to have a discussion on eschatology. It's hardly the time to be talking about some end time event such as resurrection, but then but then Jesus clarifies He's not talking theology, he's not talking eschatology, he's talking about Himself. And so He says, Martha, I am the resurrection. More than that, he says, look at verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, never die. That's a stunning promise, isn't it? It's a stunning promise that Jesus is resurrection. He is resurrection and life. But this is what he'd been trying to reveal to them all along. This is what his message from the very beginning has been. He's used a a variety of different analogies to kind of get us there. But all along the way, he's been saying, I am eternal life. Come to me. I am the promised one. I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The Old Testament prophets predicted that I would come, and I am here. See what I can do. Listen to the Father speak to me from heaven. Watch my miracles. If you don't believe my words, at least believe my actions." my miracles. This is what he had come to communicate to his people. He came as the promised Christ, the Son of God, sent from the Father to give eternal life to all who would believe. And then he asks Martha the ultimate question. Do you believe? I came to do all of these things to reveal who I am that you might believe and in By faith, have life in my name. The question now is, do you believe? Before I do any resurrection, before any miracles get on display here, I want to know from you now, do you believe? And verse 27, Martha responds, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God even he who comes into the world. There isn't any clearer statement than that in response. Note that in telling her that he is the resurrection, Jesus was attempting to move her thinking beyond the abstract doctrine and propositional truth, the theology of it, and moving her to a person, namely himself, Resurrection, as we learned last week, really isn't about some spiritual force or power. Resurrection is really not even about an event. Resurrection is about a person. It is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the person who has the power to raise the dead to life, eternal life. And apparently, Martha got this. And Martha's not just getting it here. A lot of commentators will say, listen, she, uh, this, this is her moment of salvation. This is where she comes to Christ. Well, this is a very clear statement of faith, but I find it hard to believe that she just came to that now. Remember, this is before the resurrection. She, she hasn't seen the miracle. She's seen other things that he has done in the past, and I think she's already made up her mind. I think she already knows that this is the Christ. She knows he's the Christ. She knows that he was the promised one that the Old Testament prophets said would come into the world. God would come into the world. He's not a deistic God. He would come into the world and tabernacle among us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he has come. And he is my friend. He is Jesus. He is here. She already believes that. And that makes it all the more difficult for her to understand why didn't you come? You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. If there's anybody who could have helped us when my brother was sick, it's you. You're the Messiah. You're the very son of God. Why didn't you do something? Nevertheless, Her statement is clear, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. On this verse, Dr. Tom uh, Constable from Dallas Seminary, one of my former professors, writes this, Martha's confession of faith here is the high point of the fourth gospel, just as Peter's was in Matthew 16. Her response is the clearest expression of saving faith thus far in this book. It's not the only one, but it's the clearest. I mean, when you share the gospel with someone and you say, do you believe? You just want them to get like big eyes, like this is a big aha moment, and say, yes. I've never heard it explained before. I mean, I've heard it explained, but I've never had ears to hear. They wouldn't say that, but that's... The reality, yes, suddenly, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, don't don't you want to hear that? By the way, the parallel passage here that Dr. Constable refers to is Matthew 16, 16. And there you remember Jesus is walking along with his men, and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And his disciples started, you know, throwing out things, like um, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back to... Herod says you're John the Baptist, come back to haunt him. Some say you're Elijah. You know, he went up into heaven, but now he's, he's back. He's, he has come back to life in the person of Jesus. And, and Jesus looks at them and he says, yeah, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's even shorter than what Mary said, and to the point. And remember what Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven has made that known to you. This is what Mary's doing. It's almost like God the Holy Spirit is playing these two like a piano. Jesus asked the question, and the Holy Spirit says, say this, yes, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. She believed. It came from the Spirit and from her own heart. That's the way it always comes. This is what the Apostle John was aiming for in the Gospel of John. He wrote this entire Gospel so that we would come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, we would have Life in his name. And so you can see the significance of this. Life in his name. He wants us to have life in his name by faith in him, believing in him. And so the significance here is Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. I am the very life that you need. Now let's take the next step in the text. We've, as we've seen, First of all, Jesus' response to the news that Lazarus was sick, and then Jesus' response to Martha's grief. And now John tells us about Jesus' response to Mary's anguish. Look at verse 28. When she, that's Martha, had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not gone into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house, that is with Mary, and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep some more. And... Verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is an important part of this passage. Apparently, Jesus himself sent Martha to run to her sister, to Mary. I think that because in, look at verse 28, Martha said to her, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. He sent me, I, I take that to mean he sent me to say, come out and meet with me. And this piques my interest initially because it is it's, it's pretty uncharacteristic for a rabbi, a, a Jewish rabbi, and I guess it's the only kind of rabbis there are a rabbi, to have any direct or to initiate direct contact with a woman. This is unusual. But Jesus is sensitive to the fact that Mary would surely have been just as confused and grief-stricken as her sister, Martha, and so he tells Martha, go get Mary, bring her out here so we can talk. Can we just take a kind of a pastoral aside here for a minute? I want you to be encouraged by this. I think we all need encouragement in in this way. Jesus is no passive savior. He is not simply waiting around like some dumb idol, hoping that you will come to him. He actually is calling and inviting us to come. He bids us to come. He pleads with us to come. It's like the spring of living water begging you to come and drink. It's like the bread of life pleading with you to eat it. He's begging. I mean, not as if he needs us, but he's begging because we, he knows we need him at various and sundry moments of time. He invites us to come to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. He invites us to come when we're weary and burdened. And, and yes, I, I believe Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, when he says, come to me all of you who are weary and are burdened with a heavy load and I will give you rest. I believe that's a salvation verse, but the application of it extends through all of the Christian life. There are many times I'm burdened And God wants me to come, wants me to come. He's inviting me to come. The whole point of this is he invites her to come. He invites you to come. Come. Come with your need. Come with your hunger. Come with your thirst. Come when you sin, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Come with your worship. Come with your singing as we will tonight. Come and, and ask and seek and knock, knowing that the door will be open. Come for salvation. Come for security. Come for love that will not let you go. Come with your physical needs, your financial needs, your spiritual needs. And it doesn't mean God's going to pad you with a, with, a, with a thick bank account. He, he, it's no promise that he's going to heal every illness that you have. But he promises to be everything for you that you need. And he will never give you too much to handle. Come with all of your need in every moment, every circumstances. Your Savior is not passively waiting for you. Nor is he not just passively waiting for you, but you've had the experience before, haven't you? When there's a needy person and they're always needy and you see him coming and you think, please don't talk to me. Don't, don't come and ask me. Um, he's not like that. Wayne Mack, when he was teaching us, initially uh, teaching us biblical counseling, one of the things he said was, I've probably told you this before, but he, he taught us, listen, especially in church ministry, don't ever, don't ever see your counselees as problems with legs. A walking problem. No, 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 that's not how Jesus saw it. Come, come, come. Bring everything that you have and come to me, talk to me. He's calling, he's inviting, he's urging you to come and find that he is everything that you need. And so in verse 32, it tells us that Mary finally reached Jesus and he fell at his feet. In the gospel record, we find Mary three times. Now, when I say gospel record, I say, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the gospels. You, you pile up all the Gospels together. You, you, you kind of sift through them all. You're only going to find uh, Mary, this Mary, in, in three places. And here they are, that famous one in Luke 10 that, we, that, that you know, pretty much every ladies' retreat talks about, right? Luke 10, 39, where she's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his word. She's, she's just lost in wonder at his words. And her sister Martha, St. Martha, She's a little upset at her because it looks like she's gold-bricking. She's not, she's not carrying her load. Martha is taking care of the kitchen, the meal, and she comes out and complains. Jesus, tell my sister, you know. Happens in my house all, my, all the time. You know, one of the kids will come to mom and say, Mom, tell, you know, so-and-so, get to work. Um, that's exactly what was going on here. And so, children, when you do that, just tell your mom it's biblical. It happened in the Bible. <laughs> not really. That's Luke 10, 39. So there she is sitting at Jesus' feet. John eleven thirty two. 32, it's this passage. She falls at his feet and pours out her sorrow. And that's why Jesus invited her to come. Come, bring all of that. Bring it all. And then in John 12, verse 3, she kneeled before him and anointed his feet with perfume in an act of joyful, sacrificial worship. Uh, That'll be in the next chapter. We're going to get there pretty soon. But this is really interesting. Watch this. It's kind of a side note. Go back to chapter 1, very first verses of the gospel of, uh, I'm sorry, not chapter 1, but uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. And here's what we see. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany of the village uh, of Mary and Martha, her sister And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Why do I find that interesting? Well, I find that interesting because in the Gospel of John, that hasn't happened yet. You know where it happens? In the next chapter, chapter 12. John knows. He's getting there. He's going to tell that story. But he assumes you've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know that story. And so you know Mary and Martha. And so John is telling us, this Mary and Martha that I'm talking about is the same Mary that you've already seen at the feet of Jesus. And here she is again, at the feet of Jesus. And it's also interesting to note that of these three occasions, the only three occasions where we find Mary at all, this Mary, is um, the interesting, one of the interesting things is, is she doesn't speak. The only time she talks is here. And the only words she say she says, are the exact same words that her sister said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is an exact repetition of what her sister had said. And and what what can we deduce from that? But that Mary and her sister had been sitting at home fretting and talking together about why Jesus wasn't coming. I mean, why isn't He here? Why hasn't He come? How can He say that He loves us? Why? What is it that was so important that He would neglect His friends in their darkest hour? Where is He? And once again, I, I hear, I hear these words of questioning the love of Jesus. And you know what? Two things on that. Number one, number one, don't ever judge. Now, now, all eyes up here for just a second. Let me just be pastoral with you. Don't ever judge the love of God based on your health or your prosperity. Because if that's an accurate judgment, that the love of God is expressed to us in health and prosperity rather than sickness and adversity, then God hated the Apostle Paul. And that was his life. So much so that, as we said last week, Paul was saying, look, if... If the resurrection isn't true, my life doesn't make any sense. My life only makes sense. You can only make sense out of my life, my suffering, the things that I go through every day of my life. The only way to make sense of that is resurrection. Don't judge the love of God for you based on your health and prosperity. Now, that was number one. Number two is this. Even if you find yourself questioning God's love, Christ's love for you, in the midst of your sickness and poverty, Jesus is still saying, bring it to me. Come, come to me. Come to me with that. Come to me with that. Sometimes when when I go to prayer, the thing that's motivating me to pray is I don't know what to do. I'm um, confused. L- last night, even, I was, I crawled in bed, and I just, this is rare for me. I usually crawl in bed. I'm gone. You know, it's praise the Lord. But, um, but last night, not so much. And I just had this stuff on my mind, and it was weighing heavy on me. And I thought, you know, we got to pray because He's told us, come, cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Bring all your burdens in prayer and lay it at the Master's feet. And so he calls us, he invites us, he's not indifferent, he's not a deistic God somewhere out there who's just letting the clock run. He is involved in our lives, and we are his children, and he is our father. Now, so he's talking to Mary, and Mary says the very thing that her sister says, and it's time for Jesus to respond. And Jesus' response, once again, is not what we expect. Remember when he responded to Martha, he, he did something we didn't expect. Um, he told her when she was saying, Why didn't you come? or if you had been here, uh, my brother wouldn't have died. And he said, Your brother will rise again. And, and she said, I understand the theology. And he says, No, no, I am the resurrection. That's unexpected and glorious. But once again, She says, "This is her sister." She says the same words, and Jesus does something else unexpected. Look at verse thirty-three. Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit, and troubled. Now, when we read this, we might be tempted to think that Jesus—it's just John saying Jesus was overcome by pity and sorrow and care for the ones he loved, but. But if you take the time to search this out, this, this is the reason why we need to do Bible study and not just Bible reading. We should be doing Bible reading, but also Bible study as well. When we, when we kind of tease out the meaning here and look at various lexicons, and you ask, how are these words translated elsewhere in the text of Scripture? This is what we find. Deeply moved in spirit is variously translated. To scold, to speak harshly, to criticize, to admonish urgently, to rebuke, to sternly warn, to grumble at. And in one case, it has the connotation of snorting like a horse. (laughs) Like when somebody snorts, I mean, I remember when I was in high school, we had this, this teacher and, you know, kind of the boys in the class, our goal was to try to get her to laugh so hard she would snort. It's not the kind of snorting we're talking about. When someone is really disgusted at something you've done or something said or something they see, they might snort like a horse, and I won't demonstrate. But here's the other word, troubled, troubled. It's variously translated like this, to stir up, to cause distress, to shake, to be upset or vexed. The same term used trouble, the same term that used to describe Herod's reaction to the arrival of the Magi. He was troubled, murderously so. That was Matthew 2, verse 3. In Matthew 14, verse 26, when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, they're terrified. Same word. They're agitated. They're, They're just shaking within themselves. In Matthew 14, 26, you remember, um, that was Matthew 14, 26, and then early on in the Gospel of Luke, Zacharias, when he goes into the temple and he's praying, he's offering incense because it was his time, and he only got to do this once in his lifetime, and most of the priests only did it once in their lifetime, but it was his time, and he walks in to pray, And he's praying, Lord, send the Messiah, send your Savior, send him, send the Christ, send him. And he had a prescribed prayer to pray. And the angel appears to tell him, your prayer has been answered. And the text says, he was terrified, even though the angel told him, don't be afraid. It's the same word, troubled. This is not just feeling sorrow for someone and having pity and care for someone else. Jesus was angry. I mean, I don't know how else you translate these words. I mean, you pull all of these together. He was—he was. I'm not saying he wasn't feeling compassion. I'm not saying he wasn't feeling pity. I'm just saying it's far more than that. He's hacked. He's angry about something. What's he angry about? Well, we don't know. John doesn't explain. I mean, he could deduce some things. Perhaps he was angry at the devastation that sin causes in the world and the personal devastation it was wreaking on his friends. Maybe. He may have been angry with the crowds and the Jewish mourners who, though they were God's chosen people, they were weeping and wailing and acting like pagans who have no hope. I mean, all the, the flute playing and the, the meaningless wailing and the and the costumes and and just the whole pageantry of hopelessness and mourning and death and, you know, you're never going to see your loved one again. I mean... It was just enough to make him sick. I I think that was a big part of what he's feeling right now. He was just, just really opposed to what was happening, how they were responding to the death. And no doubt, too, he was disturbed by the people's unbelief and the knowledge that no matter what he did to show that he was God, the leaders of the Jews would still reject him. And he had to be feeling something of the weight Of the reality that even the people he knew were questioning his love for them. And I'm just saying, there is a spectrum of emotion here that is pretty broad. And some of it isn't what we would expect. The scene in Bethany that day was not honoring to the Lord. Not yet. But into the darkness, the light appears in the person of Jesus Christ. So he says to Mary, verse 34, where have you laid him? And they, maybe, maybe they are Mary and Martha, or maybe Mary and the Jews standing around. We don't know. But they said to him, Lord, come and see. Now at this point, being deep, deeply affected by the people's raucous. Display and their unbelief on the one hand, and the overwhelming grief of Mary and Martha on the other, Jesus, Jesus' emotions burst forth in a flood of tears. Now, it's hard to deduce that from verse 35, but that's what it means in the original. This wasn't shedding the appropriate theatrical tear. This was just letting it go. And so we read verse 35. It is the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is rich in meaning. John simply, almost in an understated way, simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And you know what? On first blush, that may not look like much. But it's really a big deal. Because it's a true demonstration of Jesus' humanity and perhaps a clarification on the nature of deity. Humanity, the reason that it's important that Jesus is demonstrating his true humanity is because if he was not man, he couldn't have saved us even though he were God. Because he had to be, apparently, according to the best I can understand from the Apostle Paul, he had to be the replacement, Adam. He had to be a man. He had to be man's representative. He had to fulfill all righteousness, which, why, which is why it's so significant that he never sinned but was tempted in every way that we are. He was a human being. He was a real. What does it mean to be a human being? That's who Jesus was. What does it mean to be a man? All that it means to be a man. And by the way, sin is not essential to humanity because Adam and Eve didn't have sin. But all that it means to be a man, Jesus was. But also, all that it means to be God, Jesus was. And that's why this man could fulfill all righteousness and pay the penalty for unrighteousness and it account for for our salvation. Jesus' humanity is on display here. And it's a beautiful thing. Just as Isaiah predicted, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew what it was to grieve. Back at the turn of the century, previous century, 1900s, a doctrine came out called the impassibility of God. And essentially what that meant was God doesn't feel emotion. Doesn't feel emotion. He is spirit. He's not influenced by or affected. He's not affected by by the things that happen around him. So he, he doesn't get happy, he doesn't get sad, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't, you know, he's not manic-depressive, that's not possible with God, and that's true, but the rest of it's false. He is one, especially in the person of Christ, Now I think we can demonstrate this from the Old Testament of God himself, God the Father, but Jesus' knew emotion. When it says he sympathizes with our weaknesses, it means he feels our pain. He feels the weight of the burden that we carry. And here he is empathizing with Mary and Martha on top of all the other things that made him angry. He's empathizing with Mary and Martha. And in his humanity, he sees them weeping and suffering and sorrowful. And even though he knows what he's going to do, he weeps with them. He weeps with them. And Jesus was a great counselor. A great counselor. When you go to counsel someone whose relative has died, you don't go in with theology. You go in with open arms and you hold them and you hug them. And you find out how to meet their needs. I was at the hospital the other night and there was a young man there just grieving. I just left his dad's bedside. His dad had just died minutes earlier. And he was just, he could just tell you he was overcome with grief. And I went up and I didn't know him. I learned his name. And I went up and I, because I didn't know him, I, I really couldn't give him a hug. But I just grabbed his hand and I pulled him in close. And I said, listen, when this is over, come and talk to me. You're going to need to talk about what you're feeling. You need to talk about your grief. And I'm thinking, you need the gospel. Desperately he needs the gospel. And I hope he'll come. But Jesus, Jesus, in this case, with his loved ones, he doesn't go in throwing theology at them. He gives them what they need. He invites them to come, and he weeps with them. He weeps with them. I love that. I love that. Ours is not a deistic savior who watches from a distance and feels nothing for our pain. He is not a God who merely demands that we obey. He is a redeemer who empathizes with our deepest grief. His response to Mary is is one of deep emotion. His response to Martha, even, is one of deep emotion. Yet, even though she was probably questioning his love, his heart was tender toward her, and he wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on ministry to her. Isn't that great? That's a model for us, isn't it? And so here's number four. We've seen how Jesus responds to the news of Lazarus being sick, his response to Martha, his response to Mary's anguish, and number four, Jesus' response to the crowds. Very quickly, verses 36 and 37 so the Jews were saying, see, okay, so verse 35, Jesus wept. Apparently the crowd see this. Okay, so if they're seeing it, again, this isn't just a tear. He is weeping with them. I mean, it's visible. You've, you've seen, I've seen people even in this room just so moved by what the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. They just, they just quake. They just shake with bitter tears. Apparently, something very visceral and visible was happening with Jesus because the crowds could see him weeping. And so, verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 36, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Who? Lazarus. See how Jesus loved Lazarus. And that's probably an appropriate not knowing what was going on behind the scenes, probably not knowing that a note was sent to him and it took him a week to get there and and that's really confusing and why didn't you come earlier? They didn't know any of that stuff. They just saw Jesus weeping because Mary and Martha were weeping and they said, see how much he loved him. But, verse 37, some of them said, here we're back to the same question again. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? I mean, it's the same question, right? You say he loves him, but my question is, why didn't he come sooner? He could have kept him from dying. Here's that repeated thing again and again here. It's the same theme. They're questioning Jesus' love. Can you hear the underlying reproach? What they're really saying is if Jesus truly loved Lazarus, he would have come to save him while there was still time. But now, now Jesus is ready to reveal the reason he didn't come. Verses 38 and 39. So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave. And the stone was lying against it. And Jesus said to them, Remove the stone. Now, when we get to this part of the story, we think, okay, that's. I mean, we, we kind of know what the ending's gonna be. Pretend you don't know, you don't have any idea. <laughs> you don't have any, Martha and Mary had no idea what he was doing, they didn't have a clue. Remove the stone. Martha and his and her and this Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, "Lord, by this time there is a stink." Or if you have the King James, "Behold, he stinketh." <laughs> um, at this point, Martha's grief, frankly, is turning to panic. She doesn't know why he didn't come, and now that he's here, why in the world are you opening the tomb? Why do you want to open my brother's casket, as it were? He's been there for four days. By now, his body is decomposing. I mean, you've got to think about this historically. The Jews didn't embalm their, their dead like the Egyptians did. The Egyptians had a whole process, and it took, you know, weeks and months but with the Jews, I mean, as soon as a person died within like twenty four hours, and most of the third world is like this, by the way, um, when someone dies, you you got you got no time. And you got less than twenty four hours. They're going to put him in the grave. They're going to either bury him, or in this case, honoring Jesus, honoring uh, Lazarus by putting him in a tomb, which was expensive. But they put him in a tomb, and. Um, and what they did was they would wrap him with linen cloths, and in those linen cloths they would smear if they could afford it. And We know this because of, of the way Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took care of Jesus' body. They'd wrap, and they would smear these spices and perfumes and wrap and smear some more and wrap and smear some more. And it, it was a way to keep the smell under control, at least for a little while. But it's been too long for that. It's been too long. He's not going to smell like spices now if you open that tomb. I mean, four days after the death, the stench coming out of that tomb would have been overpowering. I mean, literally, people would have been getting sick. And it's clear here that even though, listen to this, even though Martha believes that Jesus is the Christ, it hasn't crossed her mind that he intends to raise her brother from the dead. And I would suggest this. It not only hasn't crossed her mind that she's going to do that, it never crossed her mind that he could. I mean, Jesus, we've seen you do some pretty amazing things. And even that little girl to whom you said, Talitha kum, little girl, please get up. She was dead. Now she's alive. I mean, she wasn't dead very long. I mean, was she really dead? Was she really just sleeping? I mean, the text says she was dead, but she wasn't dead very long. I mean, somebody could come away and say, we don't know what Jesus did, but he brought her back to life. But Jesus, I mean, come on. He's been dead for four days. Not even God can raise him. And you want to open the tomb? I mean, this is this is hopelessness to the extreme. Not even Jesus can do that. And she probably thinks he simply wants to take one final look at it at his friend, I mean, come on, that's selfish. You're not only late, but you're, I mean, is this an act of selfishness? Why do you want to open it? It was unfathomable to her. I mean, she's horrified at the thought of subjecting her brother to such indignity. I mean, even today, if, if, if you want to exhume somebody, uh, you're going to have to go to the courts, you're going to have to have lawyers, you're going to have paper signs, the judge is going to have to make a declaration. Why? Because. There is something, to, something about the sanctity of the human body that we don't jerk people out of their graves on a whim. You don't want to pull a loved one out who's been in the grave. The indignity, the dishonor. As far as Martha was concerned, the situation was helpless. I mean, if Jesus wanted to do something helpful, he should have showed up on time. If he wanted to really demonstrate his love for us, he should have come earlier. But now it's too late. And now he's wanting the tomb opened. And Lazarus in her mind was in a permanent state of death. And and beloved, I think that's why John is including all these details. I'm filling in the blanks here. I'm reading between the lines a little bit because I'm wanting you to feel what she felt. I'm wanting you to get the point that John is trying to make. This was really, really hopeless. It was a unique case. He was permanently in a state of death. Any hope of a different outcome had long since dissipated. He was dead and there was nothing, not even something Jesus could have done. He can't do anything about it. But Jesus turns and answers Martha, verse 40, Jesus said to her, (laughs) did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You will see the glory of God. Perhaps Jesus is now speaking to the disciples, maybe speaking to Martha and Mary. Maybe to the disciples because it was in verse 4 when he was with the disciples 100 miles away. He said this, this sickness is not to end in death, but for what? The glory of God. This is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified. So Jesus is saying this, what's about to happen, two things. The glory of God is going to be manifest, and you will glorify me. Look at verses 40 and 41. Did I not say to you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they removed the stone. Let me just read the rest of it without any comment. So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped all around with a cloth and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's amazing. I mean, it's beyond, it's breathtaking. Many scholars believe that the reason Jesus called out Lazarus by name, Lazarus come forth, It's because if he had just said, come forth, every grave in Israel would have opened. And we don't know if that's true, but it's fun to say. I don't know if that's true, but there is one thing I want to point out here. John has been building on a theme, and I've kind of resisted the urge in the last three messages to point this out, about belief in this story verse 15, watch this. He wants this event to provoke people to believe. Verse 15 says, and I am, okay, so verse 14, he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead. Verse 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. He's calling them to believe. And again, not that they didn't believe in him. I think in their case, he was strengthening their faith. Verse 25, those who believe will experience final resurrection. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Verse 26, he says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So the importance of believing in Jesus is being stressed here. Then look at verse 40. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you, what class, believe, you will see the glory of God? So you see John, through Jesus, stressing this. It's a call to faith. It's a call to believe. And then in verse 42, Jesus tells us what the object of the belief is. I mean, especially in our day, we got to ask this question, right? I mean, you, if you just believe, just believe. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the theme of, of Walt Disney. It's follow your heart and believe. Believe in what? Just, I don't know, pixies? Um, believe that something good is going to happen? Believe this is your best day now? Or you're, you can have your best day now? Or I don't know what. But believe, just believe. How did you make it through that, that horrible event? I just believed. I'm a person of faith. Yeah, but what is the object? What should be the object of your belief? Verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe. Here, Here it is. That they may believe that you sent me. Believe what? Believe that he's a good rabbi? I mean, extraordinary rabbi? I mean, the greatest rabbi who ever lived, the greatest teacher who ever came to Israel? Well, yeah, believe that, but that's, that's not going to save you. Believe that he's a miracle worker? Yeah, believe that, but he's, that's not going to save you. You can believe those two things and not believe the most essential thing, and that is this. Believe that I came from God. I mean, this is what Christmas is all about, right? This is Emmanuel, God with us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the promise the Messiah would come. He is here, the promised one is here. He came, he didn't come on his own authority. He didn't just appear normally. He was sent by God. You see, Jesus is the very glory of God. And the author of Hebrews calls him the radiance of the glory of God. Like the beams that shine forth from the sun is the glory of the sun. So Jesus coming from God is the glory of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. But the only way anyone will see His glory is by believing that Jesus came into the world on a mission from God. Namely, to save a world of sinners from the just and holy wrath of God. That's why he came. And this is the only way that you will ever see the glory of God in Christ. As we've learned from previous accounts of Jesus' healing, miracles never create faith. They can undergird faith, they can substantiate your faith, they can grow your faith. But they don't create faith, and really, frankly, there's nowhere that that's more explicit than here at the end of the story. Never did Jesus perform such a miracle as this, and yet, as always, the response was mixed. And you just got to say, are you kidding me? How can there be a mixed response to this? But there always is. There always is. Some will believe And some won't believe. And we know behind the scenes it's because the Holy Spirit is doing his work irresistibly in the lives of some and not others for whatever reason, mystery of God. But it was always this way, no matter what Jesus did. There was a mixed response. Look at verses 45 and 46. Therefore, that is as a result of the resurrection of Lazarus, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, now they weren't evangelists. I don't think, I think John is giving us a contrast here. Some believed, some went and tattled. Some went to the authorities and said, hey, that Jesus you're concerned about, I know you're really concerned about him. I mean, you ought to be way more concerned about him than you ever thought you should be let me tell you what he just did. That's what they were doing. He's in Bethany, get him now. And by the way, that's what the rest of this chapter is about. And we'll get there in time. But the response is always mixed. Jesus always presents himself as a fork in the road, calling all men to either reject him in unbelief or to receive him by faith and bow and worship before him as the Magi did in wonder, love, and praise. And declare, as Martha did, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so, beloved, as we enter the Christmas season in earnest this week, let me encourage you to try to push past the glitz and glamour into, you know, beyond the pageantry of the culture's version of Christmas and see. And help your children see the glory of Jesus Christ. To see the Lord Jesus for who he he really is. He is man who is God. He is God become man. He is the God man. He is the Christ. He is the son of living God who took on flesh to dwell among us. He is Emmanuel. He has come to save us. He didn't come to give us presents. He came to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. He was a man who could experience the whole spectrum of human emotions and at the same time, a man who can empathize with our pain on the one hand and and raise the dead on the other. Here he is. I mean, he's weeping with us and raising the dead. I feel your pain. Watch what I can do. And be appropriately impressed. Be duly impressed. That's what worship is. Spurgeon said something like that. Worship is to focus on the depths of God until your heart is duly impressed. This Christmas, while we're enjoying our families. I suspect a lot of us will be doing that. We're going to have our entire Kirk clan at our house. And it'll be the first time including our little grandbaby, but I won't take your time to talk about her. <laughs> While you're enjoying your time with your family and the food and all the delight that comes at the holiday season, let me encourage you to resolve to worship him and to lead your children in the worship of him in a manner for which he's worthy. He is worthy. He's God. So if you came to know Christ this year, it's going to be your first Christmas. Do it right. Enjoy it the way it was intended to be enjoyed. Enjoy Christ the way he was intended to be enjoyed. Worship God the way he was intended to be worshipped. And you'll know the joy. It's not the joy of the season. It's the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Do you see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? I hope For the sovereign work of the Spirit, some of you this morning are seeing it for the first time. Do you see the person, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Beloved, everyone who lives and believes in him, Jesus says, will never die. Will never die. How's that for a gift this Christmas? Let's pray. Father, we... I love this text because it reveals the glory of our Savior. I pray, Father, that you would help us to glory in him, to rejoice in him, to glorify him, to take our families, our children, to see the glory of Christ in his word and in our lives. Oh, Father, praise you for the blessing of that. I pray for those who are here in this room and they know that they don't believe in you. And, and honestly, they don't want to believe in you. It's going to cost them too much, they think. You might take away things that are precious to them. that They really need to give up, but don't want to give up. And they look at you, and they don't see treasure. They just see judgment. I pray, Father, that you would help them, that you would peel the blinders off and let them see the glorious resurrection that is available to them and the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. Father, may they walk out of this service this morning impressed by the fact that for the first time in their life they've, they've discovered they love Jesus. And no, Father, I pray that it would, you would grant them repentance and a new heart. And may this Christmas be their first one as a child of God. Lord, I pray that by the name of our Savior Jesus,